Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, and it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Kanika Nickham. Kanika is a human-centered design researcher with over 12 years of experience helping organizations to solve challenging human problems. Although she's originally from Mumbai in India, in researching for this conversation, I came to think of Kanika as a citizen of the world. Not long after completing her Bachelor of Design in Industrial and Product Design from MIT Institute of Design in Pune, India, her pursuit of knowledge took her to California after receiving a fellowship to study a Master's of Design at Stanford University and a scholarship for Stanford Business School. After successfully completing her studies in 2016, Kanika worked as a design research and strategy consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area, consulting to organizations from Silicon Valley startups to industry titans, teaching experimental research to designers and facilitating design workshops for executives. In 2017, she moved halfway around the world again to Wellington in New Zealand, there's definitely a story there, where she's currently growing the practice of human-centered design at Springload, one of the country's largest digital experience agencies. As a practitioner, her work has been both challenging and interesting, including designing voice-assisted healthcare systems, prototyping, and testing new airplane cabin experiences, as well as developing educational tools for preschoolers. And that's just her day job. Kanika is also an artist, mainly working through ethnography, performance art, and videography, where she encourages people to pay attention to the little things. She also dabbles in jewelry and ceramics. A fan of whiskey, tea, and chili flakes, and someone who is bursting with creativity, it's my pleasure to have Kanika here to speak with me today. Kanika, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brendan. Um, I really liked your your colorful description. It sounded like when you were like talking about it, it sounded like a quilted patchwork, you know, of like different colors and pieces and places and experiences. A lot of flavors in there as well. The chili flakes, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, thanks I've, for that. I definitely enjoyed researching for our conversation today, Kanika. I think your your background is just really fascinating, and I think it's going to be such a great conversation to have. Mm. And I always like to start on a serious note. So tell me, the whiskey, the tea, and the chili flakes, is that all at the same time? <laughs> no, that's not at the same time, but different type, parts of the day. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I do. Um, my husband is American, and um, when we sit down for uh, to have breakfast, he'll have his, like, is toast with peanut butter and maybe like slices of banana. And I'll have uh, my slice of toast with some avocado, salt and pepper and chili flakes. He's like, how do you start the day with chili flakes? I was like, I, how can you not start the day with something like savory and spicy? So, <laughs> so that's, that's the morning, yeah. I love to see those cultural differences playing out. Yeah. Now I know, I know um, people that are really into chili occasionally will take their bottle of hot sauce or chili flakes with them to restaurants. Is that something that you also do? Absolutely. I have I have my, my little first aid kit. Um, and over, over the last year, it has, uh, it has um, the new additions have been a mask, um, a small bottle of hand sanitizer, but always in that, um, that little pouch is uh, a small bottle of uh, chili flakes. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. So you grew up in, in Mumbai, which is India's largest city. And for people that have never been there, myself included, Damien, that sounds very exotic. What is Mumbai like? You know, what are the sounds and sights and smells that it brings to mind when you think of where you grew up? 
Mm. Um, there are just a lot of sounds inside. So, you know, it is, it is almost like a, it can be quite overwhelming at times, but it's also, um, there's so much, um, there's so much of, of uh, all of the sights and smells in. Um, growing up, um, you know, in school, I had friends, um, like I went to a convent school. So I had like um, from class, from kindergarten to class five, um, you know, we used to, um, we, used, we were in classrooms and um, we would um, say, uh, we would pray in front of the cross as part of the convent. But then from class five to class 10, I went to a Zoroastrian school. So that was um, Parsi and Iranian um, led. So we used to pray to the Zoroastrian fire god. So, you know, it was it was just like, and at home I had my own like spiritual cultural um, practice uh, from my family. So, you know, it, it did have a lot of um, diversity. All my friends came from like different backgrounds, different like schools of thought, um, different point of views. Um, and, and if you go out on the streets in the city, um, you know, not having grown up in, in Mumbai, you kind of do get a sense of that. Um, there, there isn't like a cuisine of Mumbai, really, uh, although some people might argue from Mumbai. But, but it is really like, like that cultural like melting pot um, from across, um, across the, the country. But also being, um, being like, a, like a big city with a lot of um, industry you also have a whole like expat culture um from like you know people from abroad so it's it's a really really vibrant and exciting uh, it's a city that never sleeps mm. that really sounds exciting definitely a place to visit mm. what what impact uh, is evident from british colonialism in the city still um it has it has some really interesting um lasting impact on, on the architecture in, in Mumbai. Mumbai has, um, I think, the second largest collection of Art Deco um, buildings after Miami. And, uh, and it, is, it is beautiful. There's, there's a lot of, um, you know, um, our, our transportation, our internal transportation system is, is a big legacy of, um, of the British. We have beautiful um, Gothic architecture, like massive railway stations and, you know, all of that. Um, the, obviously, the convent schools that I, that I went to are, are the legacy of, of the British um, um, colonies. But interesting fact, um, before, um, before the British colony uh, before Mumbai was a part of the British colony it was actually um, a Portuguese colony and um, there was there was there was a marriage between the the Portuguese and the British and Mumbai as a city was was offered as a dowry to to the British wow what a dowry <laughs> the, yeah the whole the whole city um so so um the Mumbai uh, Mumbai's old name is Bombay which actually means uh, I think the Bay of Good Hope uh, the little Bay of Good Hope in in Portuguese, so yeah, it, it is it is quite multi layered in, in that in that historical sense as well. Mm. And of course, that name Bombay is immortalized in the famous Bombay Sapphire. Yes, gym, I yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, I grew up in Bombay, so um, when people ask me, um, you know, what is home, I'm like, yeah, Bombay, up oh, Mumbai, yeah. Mm. <laughs> so before you went to Stanford, I hear that you travelled across. India. What was it that inspired you to see your own country before heading overseas? It wasn't a, it wasn't a specific um, 
I guess, um, a specific reason or a specific thing that led me to do that. Um, it was more of like my family. My parents are um, are very keen travelers. So I've been traveling within the country um, like since I was um there's there's a story that my that my mom tells me like when I was two months old, my grandparents picked me up and and took me to travel um, up north um, in near Kashmir, um, which is like a fantastic area of um, of India. But um, yeah, I guess uh, my family just really took me <laughs> travel traveling to places. So I think that is part of um, my my upbringing as such. Yeah. Mm. So picking up on your upbringing. Clearly, you're a creative and very curious person, and I get the sense, not that I have spoken to you before today, but having seen you speak, that you have a very strong sense of self. What was your family family environment like when you were growing up? Um, both my um, my parents came from come from um, a lot of creative uh, backgrounds. So my my mom's an architect, uh, my dad's an interior designer. Um, within like my cousins and aunts and uncles as well, uh, my auntie is a textile designer. My cousins are fashion designers. My grandparents. So when I was growing up, my uh, my grandfather he um, he was in the police force in India. So he had just retired and after retiring, he pursued a whole kind of like interest in, uh, in fine arts. So, you know, um, even the people weren't <laughs> in, in, in kind of uh, the arts uh, and creativity, they somehow did have that aspect. And I, and I wonder why, like, um, yeah, I don't know whether it's like in the DNA or, you know, um, but that was always um, like a like an influence and i think um a large part of that is also um just growing up and spending time heaps of time with with my mother being being the only child so i do have a sibling i have a younger brother but um uh, we have age difference of 10 years so for 10 years i was the the only child so i guess i had to invent things to do by myself um you know get get introspective create my own games and my own little universes um of course i had like friends and cousins and you know um the larger fano as such um but um but the day-to-day -day, i think um it was a lot of like looking within looking into the abstract and like kind of you know making your own adventures in your own little little home yeah so i think mm -hmm. that did um that did kind of um fuel me in that sense yeah being an mm -hmm. only child myself i can relate to to that <laughs> When was it that you realized that design and research was something that you really wanted to do? It, it, it's, it's a funny thing because I can almost like draw like a linear line <laughs> looking back, of course, not, not, uh, not looking forward when I was in the past. But um, like I like my my upbringing, like I said, was like quite inspired by a lot of crafts and arts. Um, and um, when it came time to, you know, make subject choices and decisions in school, like, you know, what am I going to study? In India, you kind of after class 10, that's that's the time when you make decisions. Um, so you either go down the arts route, which is, you know, social sciences and um, creative arts, or you go down the commerce route, which is accounting, finance, and then you have science, which is, your, you know, um, hardcore science. And um, I was partially interested in sciences and arts, um, but arts was kind of more more um where i saw myself and my skills 
Um, so I, I did two years of high school just studying social sciences. I was like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll get into economics, become an economist. Um, that was kind of what was happening. But what I did really like about um, econ e economics was, um, you know, the research part, um, although it's not uh, it's not qualitative necessarily. Um, but it's about like creating models and, you know, trying to understand um, behavior and like, you know, um, so that was something that interests me. Um, but um, but I think it was it was a lot about um, looking. I had like quite good mentors um, around me at that point in time. I had some family friends and um, like a mentor in, in my dad where he's like, hey, what about this program in product design? I was like, oh, cool, product design. Does that mean I don't I don't have to like read and write and give exams like written exams? He's like, yeah. <laughs> so you know that that really really thrilled me because because coming from that arts and crafts background, I I the way I think, the way I problem solve was very tangible and physical rather than through written words and um um. So I think that really excited me. So I did did kind of my undergrad in industrial design, um, but after graduating, um, my first job was although to create a specific product, but I got more interested in the resource, like why are we building the product we're building, uh, rather than being um, in that in that product area. So that was kind of where I was like, okay, this this research is really really like where my my skills lie, and it felt um, you know sometimes when you do something and you just it comes very easily, um, mm -hmm. you just feel like yeah this just feels like I'm not like actually making an effort to make this work. It's just happening. You're kind of in that flow state. And I was like, yeah, this, this research thing, this is cool. Let, let me, let me get, get more into this. And was there anything in the, the culture growing up as a, as a, as a female in India that shaped the way that you thought and the approach that you've taken to both design and research? Hmm. I guess um, I, I have thought about this um, quite quite a bit, and um, more so in the last few years, where um, where you know I, I know like this is my happy spot for now, um, but like why does it feel so happy? Why why do I feel so? Um, why does this come naturally to me? And I think um, you know growing up in India as um, as as a woman as a as a as a girl. Um, or, or even, even like in in Indian fam, in most Indian families, I wouldn't say all, because they're very, very diverse, um, diverse like microchasms. Um, but uh, in the family that I grew, there was always um, a hierarchy of, you know, um, the grandparents, parents, the kids. Um, you know, um, there is there's a lot of knowledge and respect that you um, that you that you show to the elders because of the experience they've had, and and as a kid. Um, you know, I almost had like two worlds, one world wherein I could go explore all these things in, in you know, my, my internal world. But in the world where I interacted with others, it was a lot about like listening to what they had to say rather than expressing. Um, it was a lot about. Um, and, and I don't think um, it's it's necessarily a good or a bad thing. It was just what what it was. Um, but that did really actually um, fundamentally made me think of um, it just made me a better listener. It just made me, you know, um, it helped me kind of try, try like get got me better at connecting dots 
you know, um, between different information pieces. Um, yeah, and I think um, connecting it to the work that I do, like as a researcher, you are always trying to make um, the person your user or the person you're designing for the expert. So that that did come very easily to me because that's what I was doing for a, for a long time as a kid. Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask you about a saying that I heard you mention in mm. your UX 2020 talk, which was Atihi Deba Bava. Mm. Hopefully I pronounced that somewhat <laughs> almost, correctly. Almost, like 80% there. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll have to practice. But what does that mean? Um, it, it, if you literally kind of translate it, um, I, I wonder what, what Google Translate would say, but, um, but it's, it means... Um, the guest is God. So um, it is It is in a way uh, a lot of concepts around like hospitality, a lot of concepts around being uh, gracious, um, being being welcoming. Um, you know, it, it is kind of acknowledging that the home is a, a sheltered, comfortable um, space. Um, and if you have someone coming from another space you know you show them you give them every everything that you have and there are there are beautiful many many stories that go on to kind of um explain this concept in a practical way so you have like a lot of like fairies and like animals in the stories um you know like children's stories um but it kind of like really talks about um like really really um offering everything you have to um to to people in one of the stories um this this lady she offers um, everything she has she these berries she has in her house to 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 this guest and um, the guest lands up being this god so it's literally you know um, it 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 who, you never know who is like walking into into your house and what they might need um, so that is kind of conceptually what what that phrase means and what role does that play in your research practice that's that's an interesting one actually i, I haven't actually thought about uh, it in my research practice because in my in my personal life um it does mean like literally when when we have like anything that comes into our house um if if we even if it is um not just people um that come into the house if we have if you purchase a new um let's say a new um pot for the kitchen for example it is um there's behind me there's this little shrine here um we bring the the new anything to the shrine and just be like thank you so much for being in our lives be very grateful that i could you know afford to buy a pot and then you actually start using it so you know it's 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 people but it's also inanimate objects uh, you kind of welcome them into the house um but in the research practice it is um it is creating that safe space right um, it is about um, just making because you you when when people are um, you know sharing giving you the gift of you know their experiences sharing their experiences their point of views um, sharing what their values are uh, in respect to what you're talking about um, that's 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 asking a lot um, of them you know and and of course you know. Um, we have like research incentives and, and all of that, but but more on like a human to human level, what what are you offering upfront? So it is about, you know, trying to make the space as comfortable as possible. Just small little things like, you know, before you start with the interview, just checking in, we're like, how is the day? Do you would you like a cup of tea or coffee? 
you know, just just small things. I think it's it's really strange that that we have to kind of remind ourselves these these things <laughs> in the crazy fast paced lives we live. We just kind of skip on 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 some of these like really really foundational like really human to human things. Yeah. Yeah, and you do a lot of in context research, so I suppose bringing that principle or that practice into somebody else's environment is even more important than when someone's coming into your own environment. Mm. Yeah, and and like in practice it could it could be very simple things as just bringing a small gift for mm-hmm. for for them just bringing some food, some kai, you know. Um mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. Now, that saying that I mentioned was from the talk in 2020 that you gave titled, Is Bias Always Bad? And you you, you challenged a commonly held belief among researchers that they should be unbiased. What was it that gave you the idea for that talk? You know, over the range of like kind of research projects I've done, there are are some projects where um, it's a pretty simple, like um, unidimensional kind of project where, you know, it's, um, uh, it's a noble, noble, like absolutely um, necessary project. Like, you know, how do we get our users to have a, a successful checkout experience on our website? You know, it's, it's a very, it's very well-defined um, topic. And um, and it's kind of easy to kind of navigate um, your biases and kind of your uh, what you're bringing to that. But then there are also projects wherein um, which are, I guess, more multi-dimensional in the sense where um, you are kind of digging down into the layers. If if you are looking at you know our projects where we're hoping to get some like behavior change either in like health or you know in like the ejection space you know there are a lot of like underlying reasons why you are behaving the way you be all all do as humans right and and i think what you start doing there is you you try to understand the the deeper motivations um what are the values that drive those motivations and and at that point you like you know you might realize that this thing that that you're working towards is it it's not just you're not just designing for someone else but you are equally part of the solution you you know that you're designing and at that point you know like who is the researcher and who is the user and that line gets like really blurry so and when when you realize that what what do you do you start thinking about what do you do i mean that's <laughs> that's literally kind of i think what was my um my um my trigger point to like kind of just take take time like you know um regularly or whenever i had some downtime um at work just like you know writing in my notebook like what does this mean like trying to expand like trying to think of um like how do i navigate between between those lines so um and i think um i i may be wrong but i feel like um because i come from like applied research background and not not a lot of these things are taught to you in school like in in design school um which i think is a really missed opportunity because the world is so complex and so like you know connected like that um but um yeah i wish someone had taught this to me in school i wish there was like a you know a a subject you know how to deal with with bias uh, or like ethics in design and um but unfortunately it wasn't something that was taught um um academically um to me so i had to kind of just yeah go on my own um own journey and um and i think it's something that will 
develop, evolve my kind of um, like my understanding about the topic over time. And you came up essentially with your own framework mm. for for identifying your bias. Tell us a little bit about that. I think you need to really be uh, kind of understand for yourself who you are. You know what you what your beliefs are. Um, you know what you. Um, how you see the world to be then able to to say like you know this is another person's point of view and how that kind of um, sits beside sits underneath on the side you know in in my my worldview and that I guess just understanding what your values are helps you understand what you're bringing onto the to the project which is which is which which might be yours and then I guess you can then um you know, decide if, if it is something you want to actually bring onto the project and influence the project with, because because I do believe that there is there is merit in that. Let's talk about that, and let's talk about that in the context of the two categories of values that you identified: foundational values and heightened values. What are those two sets of values uh, for the people listening? How do you describe them? Um, you know, the, the phrase we spoke about earlier, the Atiti Deva Bhava, um, I've been, I've, like, that's something that um, I've, I've grown up with. And it's something that's very deeply embedded in the way I behave, the way I, I am as a person. So, you know, it is a very, very um, foundational value. And, and if, I, if I have to change, it will take me a really, really long time to change. It's, it's, it's really embedded in me, right? And um, there might be other other kind of values um, that people might might have that they recognize are you know again deeply foundational. They've been something that they've been practicing for a long, long time. And and those I think if if you want to bring on to a project where you see you know this this project the outcomes of this project not only affect your users but also you, and you want to bring in those foundational values to kind of push your project, influence your project. I think that's that's totally okay. But um, I think values are something that are always in flux, you know, the, what you see around you, what you experience, um, that, that those they change your values. So um, for me, there are certain um, values which are, I guess, heightened, which are kind of, I'm still deciding, is this me or is this not me? They could, they could be influenced by, um, you know, events or um, experiences that you have. And um, I guess these um, these events or experiences, you kind of almost have to process it and understand what it actually means um, to you before you kind of use it to influence your work. And and I think as researchers, um, that is that line I'm trying to understand. You know, how much of uh, myself do I bring in or not, and when is it uh, important? When is it good or bad to bring that in? Because if I feel like if there is something that I haven't yet resolved and I don't, an experience I haven't resolved and I haven't like really said that this is a value that, that is foundational to me, it's, it can be very tricky to navigate that on a, on a project. So often in a research situation, you'll be working within a wider team context and people in the wider team will also be bringing their biases to bear in the work that you're doing together. How do you, as a group, as a team, identify your individual values in a way that's safe and enables people to share them with the wider group? Mm. 
Um, so there are two key things like um, you do it in a group and how do you do it safely, you know, because um, what we often our biases cause assumptions that we make about people, right? So assumption is an output of, of the internal biases that we hold um, and a very safe uh, kind of a group uh a safe thing, a safe activity to do in a group format is um, what we do is uh, just an assumption dump where, you know, we're, we're in a team and we just literally just put out, you know, what are the assumptions we have about this specific project, the specific user, um, the person who, who we're designing for um, and just, you know, put it, put it out there. Once it's out there, it's not it's not your bias or my bias. This is our bias as a as a team. Or these are, or I guess, like you know, just labeling bias as assumptions also just makes it easier to to work with because assumption is like a very um, it translates very well in the research language because from assumptions you can then create your research questions, right? So if if all your kind of assumptions, your team's assumptions are out there in the open, then we can kind of discuss like how do we mitigate these? Is there any you know desk research that says otherwise you know about about this specific assumption? If there is no research, then cool, let's actually just put that you know in our research session to actually say yes or no is this assumption true or not? So. I think that is that is still at a very high level, like at a very surface level, where we can start um, addressing some of the assumptions that we have, which which are caused by biases. But but I do think before you talk about your biases in a group format, I think it is it is an individual um, activity that you need to do by yourself, um, and it is something that you kind of need to kind of come in terms with uh, with with. It with yourself before you feel comfortable talking about it um, to your colleagues or you know in a group, and um, and because it, it can be quite confronting, um, you know, I, like I I've I've taken a couple of um, tests around like you know what my implicit biases are, and and when I've seen the results, I'm like shit, is that is that who I what what my is that how I I'm see the world? Person. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and. Um, you know, it's 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 really interesting. Like you really need you really need some time to actually come in terms with that. Um, and the interesting thing about biases is that uh, most of our biases do not change over our life. You know, which is which which when I found that found out, I was like, oh my god, does that mean I can never change myself as as a person? But but you know, being aware of of what they are, like then you can at least put some you know, counterbalances um, in the way. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think you do need to do that uh, activity or like whatever the thing is by yourself before you feel. And and I think as, you know, in like, in like the team environment and working with teams, I think um, it is something that we can kind of gently um, guide people to do um, because it is really, really important in, in the world we live in today where, you know, we, we interact with so many different people from so many different point of views and yeah mm, particularly for the outcomes of the project and like you touched on there when you said you 
had done some work to understand your implicit biases and you were some somewhat horrified to to find what, out what some of them were people are being asked to be quite vulnerable and i suppose i was i wondered how other people in the team might feel about sharing things that could potentially reflect poorly on them so i imagine that there's a an art and getting the team to a place where they're actually comfortable being transparent with each other and and in a, in a safe way because they're not always complementary, the things that we might think about other people or the world around us. Part of the challenge with research is also to identify and understand the worldview of the participant, perhaps what their values are. You know, why do they do what they do? Why do they believe what they believe? How can researchers identify when a participant's worldview is being temporarily impacted by a heightened value? And does it even matter? Um, I can think of a specific um, research project um, for this example. Um, you know, when you when you ask people, you know, so how, how is it that you do that thing? Can you tell me about it? People will be like, you know, oh, yeah, you know, I'm really conscious about my health. Um, I try to cook as much healthy food as possible. Um, you know, I, I try and buy fresh um, produce as much as I can. And, you know, that's that's really how I like to cook. And and then be like, oh, can I actually just, would you mind giving me a tour of your kitchen? And, you know, at that point, you know, we're kind of going through cabinets and like the fridge and you see, oh, there's a lot of frozen food. Like, you know, what? so, so you, you know, you pose a question in a very respectful way, you know, Oh, you know, you said earlier that, you know, you um, like to, uh, you know, get a lot of fresh produce. I see a lot of frozen food here. What, what um, you know, can you help me understand, you know, what, what is happening here? And um, and that's when you start to understand, like, okay, this person actually asp aspires to be in a healthy diet, eating fresh food. But the reality is, you know, they have five kids, crazy job zero time they actually need to have all of their meals for the week prepped on a on on the weekend but that what what does that say about the person it's it's not saying that they're lying you know to us but there's there's an interesting gap or like an opportunity where you know this person wants to be a better version of themselves this is the aspirational version this is kind of what their reality is and this is this is their current sort of situation and and our job as as like researchers is to help them figure out like what can we do to like close that gap between your aspirational view and your you know your current current view yeah mm. so it sounded like there that the foundational value was one of uh, being healthy and eating healthy uh, but the heightened value as a result of work and life stress had modified the behavior in such a way that they they weren't necessarily living up to what they mm. believe their foundational value to be. Mm. So you've spent the past five years or so outside of India. Kanika, how have your values over this time changed given the experiences that you've had since you left your country of birth? Mm. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of um, experiences um, have shaped like have really like um, changed me over the last um, few years um, more so than um, it's probably like, you know, my foundational years, like, you know, when you like really grow and become your, your person, you're like kind of pre-teens and after teens, I feel like I had a second burst of that. Um, yeah. Um, and I think um, more so, I guess, living in New Zealand, um, I think um, 
family has has landed up being somehow more uh, important to me, having a sense of community. Um, those are all things that I feel um, that are my aspirational um, values. It's not something um, that I have in my life yet. Uh, of course, I have a beautiful um, nuclear family, my cat, my husband, and my three chickens. <laughs> but... Um, but um, I do feel like the sense of um, like a grounding sense of community and family is something that's missing. And um, and I think, uh, yeah, that's something still I'm working out how how I how I bring in into my life. Hmm. Shifting gears and, and thinking about something on a sort of potentially more deeper and serious level, it's International Women's Day tomorrow. And as a person of color and also a woman, what biases have you encountered in your professional life? Mm. I, um, you know, in in conversations with friends or at, at the bar or you know, in, in like a show, I, I do I do get asked this question um, every once in a while, and I I often ask myself when have I felt. Um, you know, uncomfortable by the way people see me because of who I am on the outside. And um, I don't know whether I've just been um, very uh, lucky that I haven't had any experiences which make me feel marginalized or make me feel um, like I'm not part of the group in the room. Um, or then maybe I wonder, am I just very naive and, you know, I just don't see or I don't read people or just assume, um, you know, good intent. Um, what is it? And, um, the more I kind of think of it, um, I think it's, it's, it's probably just the way I see the world. Um, uh, like growing up at home, my, my parents, um, you know, they never like really treated me different because I was a girl child necessarily. Um, which, which um, unfortunately, can be the case for a lot of um, women in in India. Um, but I, I never had that. Uh, my my father used to actually use um, the the male uh, name for for a child. So you know you have bacha and bachi, which is which are two words um, uh, in Hindi, which which means child, but in male and female. But he used to call me the male version of it just for fun and like in a in a nice. Um, um, a nice way but um, so it never like really I wasn't very aware of um, my gender as such like me being a woman when I used to look up at like role models or things that you know that people that I wanted to be like um, uh, like w when the internet became a big thing I was all over Wikipedia <laughs> you know that was my like kind of um, window into the world and what's out there what are the cool things happening who are the people i still love reading i still read like you know the people pages and look at you know what they're doing but gender never like really stood out to me as such like it was just like okay here's this cool person here's what they're doing and here's um color sometimes did and it was it was more of like an aspirational thing like oh cool look at this cool um person and you know they're doing these awesome things like oh wouldn't, wouldn't it be cool if i could do that so um I guess I it's probably I just don't see that in my life and I think it 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 that's that is my personal experience um um as as a woman of color I don't I don't see um any difference in the way people treat me but I do know that that is only one 
point of view and people have very, very, very different experiences. Mm, it really sounds like your parents set some excellent conditions for your childhood to sort of give you the environment to develop this sense of self and this confidence and it's obviously served you really well. Speaking of serving you really well, you went to Stanford University and this is one of the world's most respected universities. What led to the situation where you were awarded not just a fellowship but also a scholarship to study there? I often think it's like the world's like biggest loophole that I just got into. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I think um, it it is a very, very interesting um, program where, you know, our cohort, uh, every year they have like 15 to 10 people. The, the year that I went to, we only had 10, 10 students. So it's, it's a very tight knit um, cohort. And um, I think um, it is kind of my... Um, my previous kind of experience, because I did work before um, I had applied um, for my master's. So my work, and, and I think there was like looking back, um, there is a theme um, of uh, theme, but like through all the different um, bits of my work around like education. Um, and that I think like really, really came through strongly only when I was kind of writing my statement of purpose and, you know, like kind of collating all of my work together to be like, what does this mean? I think it had a really strong um, point of view and what I wanted to do uh, in life, which I guess was uh, was compelling um, to whoever was deciding whether or not to to offer us um, offer us uh, the fellowship. But yeah, I think um, I think it's a it's a great program and um, it had it did really helped me think critically about uh, my research practice, but also my, it really bolstered my art practice and my creativity, which, which I feel like not a lot of um, programs do both of those things simultaneously. And how do those two things complement each other for you? Hmm. Um, I think they're, they're really essential pieces of, of who I am and um, they almost cannot exist without, without each other. Um, as, as, a, as my day job as a researcher, when, when I am like, I'm kind of being an empty vessel to, you know, gather people's, you know, uh, everything, the stories, the experience that they have to offer to kind of, you know, help the, the work. But I feel like I don't have um, space for my thoughts and feelings and experiences. So my art practice is is where I kind of just unleash <laughs> all of all of that. But but then again, you know, it kind of helps to have um, a, a dedicated place where I can express myself because um, I'm not necessarily I am expressing myself at work, but I'm not expressing those those really foundational things um, at work because I am giving that uh, point of view to the user, to the people that I'm interviewing. So I feel like both of those really need to exist um, for me to be successful uh, in my career as well as my, my personal life. Mm, sounds, so, sounds like your art fills you up with the energy to be able to, to do the, the research in your professional life. Mm, and if you, if you think of, um, you know, if you want to have a research career for a long time, you do need to think of, you know, what, like, how do you decompress? How do you, where, where else can you kind of um, make sense of 
you know, your own personal experiences and, and thoughts and feelings if it is not at work, because you're being, you know, you are being biased, unbiased, sorry, um, you're not bringing all of that to, to, to the work and project. So I almost think it's, it's, it's necessary um, if you want to practice research for a long time. And there's a message in your art that you've tried to bring to the world. What is that message? Um, I think when I when I started uh, making art, I was just making art for the sake of making, because you know um, that's what brings me joy. But when I when I looked at what what I was trying to do, it was to kind of um, just look at what's in front of you, you know, look at what's next to you, be present in the moment. Um, so a lot of uh, my artwork have like weird experimentary aspects to it where I, you know, I get people to just slow down for five minutes and like look into the space and then tell me about it after afterwards. Or, you know, it has um, it has me like graffitiing like random parts um, of the city with just small cues for people to be like, hey, slow down, look at this shadow of this beautiful leaf here. Have you noticed it before? So mm. I think, um, yeah, I. I do live um, at a pace where where I feel like um, I get to kind of um, acknowledge the little things that nature or life has to offer, and I feel like I want to share that with with other people. So my art is almost like prompts for people to be like, "Hey, this is a this is the way that I see the world. Do do you find it interesting?" Mm, and you did that quite beautifully in a piece called "Musing the Mundane." Tell us a bit about that project. Yeah, musing, musing the mundane was. Um, I think all of all of the things that I do bring uh, are built a lot on like my past experiences. Um, and musing the mundane, um, quite literally, was uh, was I just painted a room completely white, windows, walls, floor, furniture was like um, you know a big red couch was like upholstered in white <laughs> those white tables chairs everything and um i spent i think two weeks just drawing um on all the surfaces um just very meditatively like you know like repetitive patterns um you know things that um that you know you kind of you start with your hand but almost forget after a couple of minutes and you just kind of get into that meditative mode um but I left left it slightly unfinished, um, and then um, when the exhibit went um, went live, when people were invited to actually step into this world, which was part blank canvas, to kind of just fill in and like kind of be do those meditative things, but in a very mundane environment, in the environment that is a living room. You know, it has the same couch, the same window that everyone has at home, but you're doing something very differently. We had, I had like kids um, coming into the space and you know, they were like drawing on the couch and looking excitedly at their like parents and like, I never can draw on the couch at home. I'm drawing it here, isn't this cool? But parents were like also doing that, you know, it's kind of just breaks you out from your, your, your day-to-day -day in like that physical day-to-day -day environment, which is your living room. But you do something different, a little more chilled, relaxed, meditative. That was, yeah, musing the mundane. And I believe it was inspired by a formative part of your childhood and particularly your father's influence through his interior design. Mm. What was it like having other people come into, albeit an abstract view of that, 
and contribute to that piece of piece of art? I think um, it felt very um, gratifying and encouraging in a way where, you know, I have this very special part of, of my childhood memory, um, many memories strung together, and I've created this thing to show it to others. And, you know, the fact that they're they're willing to engage with it and add to it is it's a very grat personally, it's a very gratifying um, experience. Yeah. Coming back to Stanford, one of the projects that you were involved with there was a truly wonderful educational therapy game for children who are hearing impaired called Rhombus Rumbles. Mm. I believe it received first place at the Resna Student Design Competition, which is sponsored by the United States Science Foundation. Mm. What was the problem you were trying to solve there? There was um, there were problems around um, my my education kind of thread came in here where um, I was interested in looking at um, how how do how do deaf children learn language? And um, there is there's heaps of um, you know scientific research that talks about the more words you're exposed to as a child, the better your language uh, develops. But mm -hmm. um, but if you are a deaf child, you obviously have that disadvantage from day one, right? And um, so how do you kind of create other tools or other tools in that age is, is toys, right? Which is so exciting. Um, so how do you create um, these fun educational games that, um, that the kid can play, not just um, in, in therapy sessions which like, with like a speech therapist, because um, the, the research that I did for the project was part in India and then part in California. Mm -hmm. And in across both, um, I guess, the both um, both parts of the world, um, you know, if you if you are going to a speech therapist, you'd probably go go to them like once or twice a week, and and that's it. And mm -hmm. if you have like um, a parent that's like working full time, who is actually going to do play those games with you? So mm -hmm. this was this was a game that you could play with uh, with people who have um, full hearing capacity. So you know, you're kind of leveling leveling the playing grounds for for a deaf child and a child with hearing to play together so mm -hmm. even even though you're not in a therapy session even if you're playing a game with with your with your brother or a sister or your friends or, or your parents you still are learning those those language skills so that was um that was kind of the concept behind behind the project what was the mechanic of the game it had like the first um few words that that children learn and um, we selected words that are that are specifically um, like phonetic. So you have like words that that you can like lip read. Then um, there are certain words that that are produced slightly um, inside of your mouth. Um, and that was kind of the levels of the games. You know, um, level one, the easy beginner level, was all the words that you could kind of see your lip making. And um, and the kids had um, just prompts on tiles. Where you could, you know, you had a bunch of tiles on the, on the um, on the table. You you could put as many tiles or as little tiles, and you're trying to almost um, lip say a, a word, uh, and the other person is trying to lip read what what you're trying to say, and and you know those words are um, confined because it's not any word in the English language, but uh, they're words which are on the table. So it just, it, and you can add like a, um, you know, a time aspect to it to get it like fast and speedy or, you know, so it, it kind of just, even the, even the child uh, or even the person who is 
who is not deaf um, can also play the game um, through lip, lip lip reading, and it's kind of mm -hmm. just a fun fun game. When you were evaluating the game with the children, how did it feel to see them engaging with it? Oh, that's that's the best part, isn't it? Um, when 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 you have gone through a couple of iterations and it's like, oh, is this gonna work? And so we we kind of tested it at a at a play school, and um, we had uh, we had one specific child who's who's very 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 shy, um, and um, the, the child never like actually speaks much in in the classroom, but uh, but when we kind of had the the that came with um, four other kids on the table. This kid was like going crazy with the game. He was like winning. He's like, yes, we got the word. He's like, it was, it just, it just goes to show that different people learn differently, you know? And I think we just, we just have to provide as many ways of, um, as we can for people, for kids, especially to, to learn and just bolster their, their confidence from, from a young age. It's such a great example of the impact that some great research and some great design can have for for people. Mm. Before we move to closing things out with some rapid fire questions, and, and then and then take the show to its uh, natural conclusion, I just wanted to touch on briefly one other aspect of your time at Stanford, and that is I understood that you were mentored by David Kelly, the founder of IDEO, for your uh, final thesis or your your project mm -hmm. within that what was that experience like um it was it was fantastic um but but then again it I, there wasn't like a necessarily a sense of uh, oh my god it's david kelly it's like oh yeah cool it's david kelly you know <laughs> um uh it, it was really great because one thing there was obviously um one-on-one -on -one kind of feedback that we uh that my my me and my team got um from um, from David Kelly, but um, there was also like just so many interesting people he got into the classroom. Um, you know, we we had like um, you know, kind of like the the top like design human centered designers um, in the Bay Area coming to our classrooms, and I was like, wow, like you you'd just have a moment in like you know, be like, wow, am I really here? Am I like you know, in the, in the midst of these people, and they're just offering their time um, and giving me advice on my project. Um, so yeah, I think it was it was really great. Um, the one thing um, I, because we obviously had um, a relationship outside of of the thesis project as well, and um, after working um, for for like a year or so in in the Bay Area, and I was trying to move to New Zealand, it was it was a big decision in the sense um, at that point in time at least um, I was like, oh wow, I'm in Silicon Valley, <laughs> you know, it's it's where the things are at. Remember, this is a couple of years back. Um, I'm in the epicenter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, like, oh, should I be going to New Zealand? Like, why am I? Like, is this is this a good decision? My parents. Yeah. Are, how, did, how did that come about? <laughs> what a, what what a move to make from being in Silicon Valley to Wellington? And I'm from Wellington. And don't get me wrong, I love Wellington, but love it's it, not Silicon yeah. Valley. Um. The thing is, I think I don't um, hold um, too much importance on things in the moment. And um, at that point in time, I was um, I was dating um, a dude who is now my husband, um, who moved to to New Zealand and um, in Wellington. 
and we were doing long distance for a while. I was like, there's only one way this is going to work um, if, if one of us moves. So, um, yeah, I just I just followed my the love of my life to to the other side uh, of the hemisphere. And my parents at that point, were like, what are you doing? Focus on your career. What is this? <laughs> Typical Indian parents like, oh, like, why are you following this dude? Some white dude. <laughs> Um, some biases coming out yes 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 um and and that point I I just I just went to David I was like what do you think what you know you know it's pretty cool like I'm working with um with all my friends here like we used to do like do interesting projects just get a group of uh, our friends together and like work on projects which is a great um uh, great time um, and I was like, you know, should I should I move to New Zealand? I'm, I'm not sure what it's like there. I've never been there. I've never traveled to New Zealand even. And and he said, um, you know, the one piece of advice he he gave me, I, I still remember it every every now and often, and and um, it does kind of help me have confidence in my decision. Is it's like the further you move away from from you know your your home, because this is kind of like my home. It was my home. My um, where I did grow quite um, exponentially. The further you move away from your home, the, the more you learn, the more your skills will be valued. And um, and I and I feel like I feel that every few you know weeks, I'm like you know, I've, every, like, coming to New Zealand, I feel like I was bringing a different point of view to New Zealand. Um, and I think that was valued. That is still valued, and um, that is part of what I bring to the table. And, but also I'm sitting with such talented people on the table uh, who are not like me, who don't come from the same background as I do. And I have so much to learn from them. So, you know, it's such a great reciprocal like thing to do at this point in my career. So Mm. yeah, that was the best piece of advice I got from, from David. So not everybody can say that David Kelly's the reason why they got married. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is true. Um, yeah, when when uh, when we got married, um, uh, I just put a post on on Instagram, and David's like, uh, "Congratulations!" And I was like, "Yeah, thanks for the thanks for the intro." Because <laughs> also my husband is. Uh, we went to the same program at Stanford, so David did pick both of us to be on the program. <laughs> So yeah. he was really instrumental. Yeah, the matchmaker. <laughs> are you up for some quick rapid fire questions? Mm. Let's cool. do it. So these are scenario based questions, and I'm just going to read them out, and then we're going to see what you say. Okay, I'm a little scared, but <laughs> let's see how we go. <laughs> Feel free to shake out any nerves. Okay. <laughs> the first one is you suspect that a stakeholder is bringing some unconscious bias to their assessment of the problem space. How do you help them to see that? I would ask them what you've said, you know, um, where is it coming from? Or if they're, if they've reacted in a certain way, it's like, what are you feeling right now for you to be reacting that way? Mm. Hopefully. And obviously not in, in a, in a meeting environment, but in a, in a more of a one-on-one because that Mm. can then kind of just open up the conversation. Yeah. That sounds really disarming, really smart. Mm. The next one is you're interviewing a participant and they seem reluctant to talk freely with you. How do you encourage them to open up? Um, I would ask them, um, would you like a change of scene? Would you like to go for a walk instead? Um, Would you like to hop into the other room? Is this room too stuffy? 
um, it may not be the room, but I think just literally changing environment might change things up a little bit. So mm -hmm. maybe that's the first thing I'll try. And then if that doesn't work, I'll try something else and something else. Gold, good place to start, change yeah. the context. I really like that. The final one is you've designed a script to evaluate an experience that your team has designed. After the second of five participants, you realize that there's a problem with the script. What do you do? Hmm. So I have had this experience quite a few times and, <laughs> and the, and the two things you, you kind of, um, weighing is like, do you change the questions, uh, and then risk the data being all, all messed up or do you, uh, or do you kind of just like, and then just like go ahead with the, with the misleading question or whatever the question that's not working or, um, do you, do you change it up? And I think it depends on, um, what level of fidelity uh, the thing that you're testing is, if it is mm -hmm. like quite um, highly, um, if it's a high fidelity thing, I think it's okay to change things up a little bit because you don't need a lot of, um, you don't need the number of um, participants to validate a certain thing, uh, which is quite highly defined. And hopefully you have gone through multiple rounds of, of testing before that. So you can mm -hmm. have confidence in smaller numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's the point where I feel like I could switch it up, but if we are like, um, testing something, which is a little more conceptual, um, I think I'd still keep, keep the question that seems like it's not working that well. Cause I know further down the line, we would have the opportunity to kind of refine and get more of from that area of that question. Mm. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Mm. That's the end of our rapid fire questions. And now just bringing us down to the close. Thinking about the field of design research in 2021 and the immediate years ahead, what are you most excited about? Hmm. A couple things. Um, I think one is people in general are being really aware of the dilemmas and the, I guess, the, the harm that a lot of digital products can bring and, you know, it's, I think we, we, as researchers, no longer can, can be in that naive, innocent uh, point of view. People, like when, when you go to research people, we have sometimes people asking us questions, you know, so how are you going to make this experience not addictive? And I think that is, it's, you do need that counterbalance to, to actually design and create something that is, that is truly innovative and good. Um, so I think I'm, I am excited to kind of like work with that, the challenging opposing force. And I think that's, that's going to be really, really interesting navigating in the next, next few years. And, and we, we've, we see it everywhere in all the different, different, different countries. That's what happening globally. People are like more divided, um, on online than, than United, you know, and, and people are, people are starting to see, um, why, why this is happening and, and how the digital technologies are playing an adverse effect adverse role in this so i think um it's going to help us to push our field um to a better better place than than what it is currently so i'm excited to be kind of part of that um i think in in the next few years i think um the other exciting thing is um people and organizations are being more aware and supportive of the big challenges that are in front of us, like climate change, for example, you know, we, 
even like five years ago, we didn't have that many people acknowledging or accepting or doing something actively about it. And, um, and it just feels like it is the time is ripe, you know, um, it's stuff is happening, things are things are changing. And to be part of that, I think it's going to be really, really uh, exciting. Mm, most mm. definitely. There's some really important eth ethical considerations for the field. And clearly, if we help to create it, we can also help to change it. Mm. Let's play a game. Okay. <laughs> it's a pretty simple one. It's called, what's the first word that comes to mind? So I'm going to say a word. And Is this a psycho, gonna... psycho and analytic like, <laughs> test or something? After this, after the test, I'm going to get some results. <laughs> I, pr I promise it's not. <laughs> So I'll say a word and then you just tell me what the first word that comes to mind is. All We've right. got th three of them to go through. The first one is bias. Humans. Mumbai. Sensory overload in a good way. <laughs> That's not one word at all. <laughs> oh, it doesn't have to be one word. It can be anything. Okay, good. cool, cool, cool. <laughs> and the final one is whiskey. Ooh, ice. Mm. I see. <laughs> if you could get a message out to all of the girls growing up in India today, what would you say to them? For me, it was really important for me to have um, many mentors and role models in front of me. And that is not something that everyone has. But I think I would urge... Um, girls, women in India to look at women around them in unsuspecting um, roles who may not be a role model or a, or a mentor um, at the first go, but look at look at our grandmothers, look at our, our sisters, our, our mums. You know, they are really strong, really resilient women. Um, you know, they have over, over, over their lives, they've like created such beautiful families, supported such great children, and that in itself is not a small task. The foundational, I think, skills that um, that that are needed to kind of have like a successful career, you know, is not very different from running a successful household, running a loving, um, bringing up loving children, bringing up children that are confident about themselves and. Um, are just good humans. That is, I feel like you, you would need more skills and, and um, work to, to to work towards that. So, I would urge I would urge girls to just look at you know look at other women and and support them and and get um, inspiration from from them. Such an important message. Kanika, it's been tr a truly insightful conversation today. Thank you for so generously sharing your knowledge and experience with me today. Thank you, Brendan. Um, yeah, your questions were really, really interesting as well. They've gotten me to think about um, different parts of, uh, of what I do and um, who I am. And uh, I always, always appreciate that. Thank you so much. No, it's my pleasure. And for people that are interested in connecting with you, finding out a bit more about what you do, what is the best way for them to do that? Just reach out to me on my email, which is um, my first name, Kanhika, K-A-N-H-I-K-A at Gmail. That's, yeah, I'll, I'll get back to you at some point. 
Sounds great. We'll be sure to put those uh, details in the show notes as well as a link through to your website. Thanks, Kanika. And to everybody who's tuned in, it's been great having you here. Everything we've covered today will be in the show notes, including, as I mentioned before, where you can find Kanika, including any resources that we've mentioned as well. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more of these great conversations with world-class leaders in design, UX, and product management, don't forget to leave us a review and to subscribe to the channel. And until next time, keep being brave.